we're in our series about how we got our Bible, and I wanted to talk today, we've talked about the Old Testament the last week or two, I wanted to get to the writing process of the New Testament. Before I do that, though, I was reminded this week of something I heard about some years ago. This is actually an article from 2015, but, and I'm sorry, these pictures aren't very good. If you just looked at this picture right here, it looks like just a piece of charred wood or something. This is actually a, a Hebrew scroll discovered in the Torah Ark. You guys remember in a in a synagogue, they would have a, an ark or a chest where they would keep their scriptures. And this is the place on Gedi, uh, just west of the Dead Sea in Israel. And in the, the 6th century, this synagogue was burned and just sort of left. But they, they found in 1970 this scroll, a burned scroll. Let me just read part of this article. A burnt ancient scroll found in 1970 has finally been deciphered thanks to advanced digital technology. Four and a half decades after its discovery, the scroll was recently revealed to contain a passage from the book of Leviticus. Excavated from the Torah Ark of a Byzantine period synagogue at Ein Gedi in Israel, and this was 6th century, the scroll had been victim to a fire that raged through the entire village. The scroll is considered to be the oldest Hebrew Bible scroll discovered since the Dead Sea Scrolls. Furthermore, the discovery represents the first time a Torah scroll has been excavated from an ancient synagogue. So this is a scroll by the Dead Sea, not the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls are from a place more north, and they're older than this one. So this one dates to uh, the 500s or so. The Dead Sea Scrolls are earlier, around the time of Jesus. But still, this is very interesting. So they find this scroll in 1970, and what do you do with it? All they can do is try to preserve it the best they can. Well, in 2014, a company was given the ability to do some 3D scans uh, on this scroll. They sent the scans to uh, somebody in the U.S. who was able to digitally unroll it and could show the text beneath it. Now, this is... I couldn't read this at all. It's, again, hard to see, and it would take scientists a long time to sort of figure out what this actually said. But over uh, many months of study, they're able to determine that this is actually the first couple chapters, at least, of the book of Leviticus. So I thought this was really fascinating and how many other treasures like this are out there that people up until very recent times could not even hope to understand. A lot of these scrolls, of course, uh, are fragile, and especially ones like this that are actually burned, it makes they can get anything out of it. And something that you might just throw away with the right technology, the right care, can actually uh, reveal hidden treasures. So I'm thankful for scientists who are doing this kind of thing. It's, it's amazing because they, they can do and shows the preservation of God's word even through fire over many centuries. Now, let's go to the New Testament after some time in the Old Testament. This is how we, one way at least, to group the books in the New Testament. We have the Gospels, of course, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We have the historical book of Acts. It shows the history of the early church, the epistles. We have the Pauline epistles, 13 or 14, depending on whether you consider Hebrews written by Paul or not, then the general epistles, um, again, whether you consider Hebrews anonymous or written by Paul, you have Peter's epistles, uh, James, John, so forth, Jude, and then finally the prophecy book of Revelation. So these are, again, general categories of the New Testament of our 27 books. In 
in the book of Revelation, we have, as the book was written, part of it is a description of John's visions as he writes them. Other times he said, just write this. So they're direct transcriptions of what John was told to write by Christ or by an angel and so forth. Well, we look at the Gospels and Acts and how they came to be. At first, the words and works of Jesus were communicated by preaching, right? Uh, somebody would go from place to place, and Paul, for example, with Peter, would go to a, a city and preach Christ. He would, they would say, you have your Old Testament scriptures, if they were, this is a Jewish synagogue, for example, and this man, Jesus, who lived in Israel at this time, who was crucified, but is now risen, is the one who fulfills these prophecies. <clears throat> Let me just read you a, some, a somewhat lengthy quote from F.F. F. Bruce. He says this, Until about the 60s of the first century A.D., the need for written Gospels does not appear to have risen. So long as the eyewitnesses of the great salvation-bringing events were alive to tell the tale, it was not so necessary to have a formal written record. But the apostles were not going to live on earth forever, and it was obviously desirable that their message should be preserved after they had gone. So we find Mark, the companion and interpreter of Peter, committing to writing in Rome the gospel as Peter habitually proclaimed it. Shortly afterwards, we have Matthew's gospel appearing in the East, based largely upon a collection of the sayings of Jesus, probably written down first by Matthew himself. And Luke, the companion of Paul, writes in two books for Gentile readers a narrative of the beginnings of Christianity from the birth of John the Baptist up to Paul's two years residence in Rome. Towards the end of the century, John, perhaps the last surviving companion of Jesus in the days of his flesh, writes his reminiscences of his master's life and teaching, together with his meditations on them, in such a way as to supplement the earlier Gospels. The Gospels are not simple biographies. They are rather written transcripts of the Gospel preached by the Apostles. End quote. As F.F. Bruce says, the Gospels are not really biographies. I've often said in our study of the life of Christ, there are lots of things we like to know. Are the particular stories in sequence? What kind of stories are that are not there that we would like to know? But we have what we have in, in God's providence, and that's enough for us. We don't need any more stories of Christ as much as we might like to see them, like to know more about his life. These Gospels have a special purpose. You might even call them theological biographies of Christ, not focusing on all the details of Jesus' life, but upon the ones that are necessary. As we've read many times in our study of John, he gives his reason for writing this Gospel explicitly at the end of chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So Jesus did many signs, he spoke many words, but what John has given you is enough to believe that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah, he's the Son of God, and not just that, but that if you believe in Christ, you will have eternal life in him. Luke also had a specific purpose in writing, and it wasn't just for us, it was for a particular person at a particular time, and we are a beneficiary of Luke's labors. Luke chapter 1, Luke begins this, verse 1, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses 
and servants of the word, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. So we have John, who's an eyewitness of Jesus' life. We have uh, Matthew, who also was. Mark, who wrote, uh, we believe, from Peter's perspective. And so we have a, a direct link to Jesus' ministry. But Luke explicitly says in, in this that he was not an eyewitness. They were handed down to us by those who were eyewitnesses. But I'm writing them down to you, Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. So Theophilus knew something about Jesus, but Luke wanted him to know the exact truth from about Jesus' life in the Gospel of Luke and about the early church from the book of Acts. And as I said before, we would love to have more details about Jesus' life, but God in his providence has given us enough. And John even says at the end of his Gospel, there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail... I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. And one thing I wanted to mention here, just really by way of curiosity, is there's a big sort of gap in Jesus' life. From the time that he was an infant, we see the infancy narratives in Matthew and Luke. And then we have one story in the Gospel of Luke from Jesus when he was 12. But beyond that, until his public ministry, we, we know really nothing about Jesus' life. And so there was an interest in the years after the, the time of the, the writing of, of the New Testament, what was Jesus actually like as a child? And so I thought it might be interesting to look at some of something called the infancy gospel of Thomas. Now, this, of course, is not part of God's word. It's not uh, true. As we'll see, these stories are definitely fantastic. These are apocryphal stories from Jesus' childhood. It basically... What would happen if you give a, give a small child superpowers? That's what it sounds like. You have a, a boy who grows up to be a, a great miracle worker. What would, he, what would he be like as a child? And so these stories read like something that uh, somebody who would be creating legends based on this man. So just uh, to read a, a few quotes here, you can follow along on the screen. Uh, Infancy Gospel Thomas. This little child Jesus, when he was five years old, was playing at the ford of a brook. And he gathered together the waters that flowed there into pools and made them straightaway clean and commanded them by his word alone. So he's making these, these little pools, just speaking these little pools into existence. Uh, having made of soft clay, made soft clay, he fashioned thereof twelve sparrows. And it was the Sabbath when he did these things and there were also many other little children playing with him. And a certain Jew, when he saw what Jesus did, playing upon the Sabbath day, departed straight away and told his father Joseph, Lo, your child is at the brook, and he has taken day, or clay rather, and fashioned twelve little birds, and has polluted the Sabbath day. So you're not supposed to play, you're not supposed to make things on the Sabbath day. And Joseph came to the place and saw, and cried out to him, saying, Why do you do these things on the Sabbath, which is not lawful to do? But Jesus clapped his hands together and cried out to the sparrows and said to them, Go! And the sparrows took their flight and went away chirping. And when he, the, the Jews saw it, they were amazed and departed and told their chief men that which they had seen Jesus do. So Jesus is creating these clay sparrows, and he, when he's rebuked for making them a Sabbath, he turns them into real sparrows and they fly away. Not the sort of tricks Jesus did when he was uh, in his uh, later ministry. 
Uh, another story that says, but the son of Annas, the scribe, was standing there with Joseph, and he took a branch of a willow and dispersed the waters which Jesus had gathered together. And when Jesus saw what was done, he was angry and said unto him, O oh, oh, evil, ungodly, and foolish one, what hurt did the pools and the waters do to you? Behold, now also you shall be withered like a tree and shall not bear leaves, neither root nor fruit. And straightway that lad withered up wholly, but Jesus departed and went unto Joseph's house. But the parents of him that was withered took him up, bewailing his youth, and brought him up to Joseph and accused him, for that you have such a child which does such deeds. So Jesus gets mad, throws a temper tantrum, and smites uh, a child who's there. Another story. After that, again, he went through the village, and a child ran and dashed against his shoulder. And Jesus was provoked and said unto him, You shall not finish your course. And immediately he fell down and died. But when they saw what was done, said, Where was this young child born? For that every word of his is an accomplished work. And the parents of him that was dead came to Joseph and blamed him, saying, You that have such a child cannot dwell with us in the village, or do teach him to bless and not to curse, for he slays our children. So in these stories, we have Jesus, something like a little monster, constantly smiting those who annoy him. You guys who have raised children know sometimes they have bad days, and they, they get temper. Imagine a child throwing a temper tantrum who also has the power to, to kill and to raise from the dead. Now that's the kind of story that is made up for these, in the infancy gospel of Thomas. And sometimes he's actually more like a superhero. So here's one last story. Now, after certain days, Jesus was playing in the upper story of a certain house, and one of the young children that played with him fell down from the house and died. And the other children, when they saw it, fled, and Jesus remained alone. The parents of him that was dead came and accused him that he had cast him down. And Jesus said, I do not cast him down. But they reviled him still. Then Jesus leaped down from the roof and stood by the body of the child and cried with a loud voice and said, Zeno, for that was his name, for that, so was his name called, arise and tell me, did I cast you down? And straight away he arose and said, Nay, Lord, you did not cast me down, but did raise me up. And when they saw it, they were amazed. And the parents of the child glorified God for the sign which had come to pass and worshipped Jesus. So that's the kind of stories that came up after Jesus uh, had gone to heaven in the, in the centuries following the, the life, the earthly life of Christ. What was his, his infancy like, his childhood like? This kind of stuff. It, it's really kind of crazy, but that's the kind of stuff that was circulating, people actually believed. In fact, there's a, a reference to this in the Quran where um, apparently some of these stories had made it uh, to the knowledge of Muhammad, and so he would make reference to these stories about Jesus sort of being this, uh, this kind of unholy terror when he was a child. Um, and he thought that was part of the true stories about who Jesus was. So a misapprehension of who Jesus was came to be because of these sorts of stories. That's on my slides for now, so I'll just turn the lights on again.
One, two, three. Am I now? Okay. Sorry about that. Hard to remember where, where the mute button is. The sources of the Gospels, there are several of them. One is eyewitness accounts or oral traditions, and I mentioned that in Luke 1, 2. Luke mentions these things that were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. And even Acts 1 refers to this. It wasn't just the 12 who were eyewitnesses of much of Jesus' ministry. In fact, it says in Luke, or sorry, Acts 1, 22, Therefore it is necessary, this is Peter speaking, that of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So we often might get a picture in our minds of Jesus as he's traveling around. He has Jesus and just exactly 12 men going from place to place. But there was often a a group with Jesus, uh, even some women travel with him, some men from time to time, not all with him 24-7 necessarily, but much of the time there was a, a larger group. And these were also eyewitnesses of Jesus and what he did. So it's not just Jesus and the 11, you know, assuming Judas didn't have a whole lot of effect on because he, he killed himself shortly after Jesus, or as Jesus was being crucified. We have the voices of the, the, the 12, but also the voices of others who had traveled with Jesus, who had seen his miracles, who had heard his words. And we also have some early writings. Besides the eyewitness accounts and the oral traditions, we have early writings. <clears throat> and we have uh, let me quote F.F. Bruce again. In the New Testament, we have Luke's reference to the many who had undertaken to draw up accounts of the gospel events. As we read that in Luke 1. Before the canonical gospels appeared, there were likely several written summaries of the story of Jesus and digests of his teaching, compiled for private use or for use in evangelizing and teaching. The nativity narratives of Luke's first two chapters look as if they were derived from a Hebrew memoir, preserved perhaps in the Holy Family. So you can imagine that somebody who followed Jesus, if Jesus came to your, your town and you could write, maybe you would write down some things that he said that were especially poignant, especially important to you. Like we take notes today. Uh, it was less common back then because paper wasn't so common and writing wasn't so uh, so widespread. But you, you might do that for yourself. And Luke might come to your town and say, hey, do you have any recollections of what Jesus said or did? And, and they could say, yes, I do actually. Let me show you what I wrote down. I took some notes in one of his sermons. And Luke, for example, could use that for his his gospel. Uh, Papias, who was born in 70 AD, and he died the middle of the 2nd century, has recorded as writing that Matthew put together the oracles of the Lord in the Hebrew dialect, that's Aramaic. And he may have been speaking of the gospel of Matthew, but something that was a separate composition of Matthew. So Matthew might have had some of his own notes that he used as he wrote his gospel later on. Another interesting possible source of the Gospels is shorthand. Any of you take shorthand in school? It's not so common anymore. Um, but, yeah, so shorthand, there, there was such a thing even back in Jesus' day. Let me quote an article I found some years ago. The first stages of a literary tradition may have been instantaneous with Jesus' ministry, and they could have been surprisingly precise. Shorthand writing, tachigraphy, which means fast writing, was known in Israel and the Greco-Roman world. Such a skill was highly necessary. Writing material was scarce. Leather or parchment was highly priced. Papyrus was dependent on import. Writers were often forced to use pot shards or wax tablets, which had limited room for detailed texts. 
who saw some wax tablets, pictures of them a couple weeks ago. Shorthand writing was the most practical remedy. There was even a man among Jesus' entourage who was professionally qualified to write shorthand, Levi Matthew, the customs official. Indeed, if Levi Matthew had heard the Sermon on the Mount before he was called by Jesus and could react so swiftly to this call because he had already been convicted by that sermon, one may have in Matthew 5-7 through a direct result of a shorthand protocol. So Matthew, who was trained as, as a, uh, <clears throat> a tax collector, may have known some sort of shorthand, able to write very fast, transcribing uh, or taking detailed notes of what uh, a speaker would say and able to communicate those later on. And if, if Matthew sort of follows Jesus around, he might have had his own uh, notebook, you might say, of things Jesus said and use them later as he wrote the Gospel of Matthew. Now, beyond these uh, human agencies of keeping track of what Jesus said and did, we also have the work of the Holy Spirit. And we don't want to forget that or discount that, even as the historians today will say, well, we can't include that in in how this information was transmitted, but we as Christians can do so. Jesus said that what he did we brought to mind. John 14, 26 says, when the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. In John 16, 13, Jesus said, but when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. So we have a a spiritual helper, the Holy Spirit himself, who was working in the hearts of the, the disciples as they preached the word of Christ, but specifically the man who wrote down what Christ did in the four Gospels. The Spirit was helping them as they did so. Now let's look a little bit more specifically at each of the Gospels and and Acts as we look at these historical writings. Uh, Matthew, of course, was an eyewitness of much of what Jesus did. We look at Matthew 9, Matthew 9, verse 9. Jesus went on from there. He saw a man called Matthew. By the way, he's called Levi Matthew in that quote earlier because Levi was his, uh, his Hebrew name, his Jewish name. And he would have used Matthew as a in, in, in a Gentile context. So Jesus saw a man called Matthew sitting in a tax collector's booth. He said to him, "Follow me," and he got up and followed him. He's also mentioned in chapter ten, verse three, uh, uh, Matthew the tax collector. In fact, we know at least one case where Matthew was present in. Matthew 9, just after Jesus calls Matthew, Matthew invites Jesus to have a, a meal with him and a lot of his friends to, to proclaim the gospel. As I referred to earlier, uh, Matthew was said to have written uh, a gospel among the Hebrews in their own dialect. Now, the, the Matthew we have today is written in Greek, but Matthew may well have written another version of the gospel beforehand in Aramaic so that the Jews would be able to read it more easily. But he later perhaps translated that or adapted it into a Greek edition for a wider audience. So people could more people could speak Greek than could speak Aramaic at this time. <clears throat> and some scholars think that Matthew was most, most likely written in Syrian Antioch, which is a Gentile city with a large Jewish population. So Matthew can write his gospel for a Jewish audience, but also give it to a broader Gentile audience 
in the east, and then that's where it was transmitted from that point. Now, Mark uh, is, what, what's, remember Mark's full name? You see it elsewhere? Yeah, John Mark. And he's mentioned in Acts 12. Look at book of Acts for a moment. John Mark mentioned in Acts chapter 12, verse 12, um, when he realized this, that is, um, Peter is speaking here, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was also called Mark, and they were gathered together, many who were gathered together and were praying. So when Peter is released from prison, remember the story, it's easy to forget that the house where Peter went, and remember he knocked on the door and the servant girl came, and they didn't believe he was there. That was actually John Mark's house in Jerusalem. So presumably Mark was there at this time. He may have been a young man, but uh, he was he was there, we expect. And his mother was named Mary, one of the many Marys in the New Testament. It was, again, from her house that the church was praying for Peter's release from prison. And Mark himself was a companion of Paul and Barnabas on the first missionary journey. We see him in Acts 13, verse 5. So as they reached Salamis, they began to proclaim the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they also had John as their helper, that is, John Mark, not John the Apostle. But verse 13 says, Now Paul and his companions put out to sea from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia, but John left them and returned to Jerusalem. So somewhere along the line in this missionary journey, John decided to leave and go back to Jerusalem. When Paul wanted to begin what was called the second missionary journey, later in Acts chapter 15, Barnabas wanted to take Mark too. Look at Acts 15, verse 36. Acts 15, verse 36. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Barnabas wanted to take John, called Mark, along with him also. But Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there occurred such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another, and Barnabas took Mark with him and had sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and left, and being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. So this team of Paul and Barnabas was split up over whether Mark should come with them on this second missionary journey. A couple of the references to Mark, just to get a, a bigger, a better understanding of, of who he is. Look at Colossians, Colossians chapter fourteen, or chapter four, four, fourteen, chapter four. There are not fourteen chapters in Colossians. <clears throat> Colossians four. And Paul here says, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends to you his greetings, and also Barnabas's cousin Mark about whom you've received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. So now we see maybe why Barnabas wanted John to go with him so much, is because he's his cousin. <clears throat> but he's obviously reconciled with Paul at this time, some years later, that he Paul has good words to say about Mark. So whatever it was that, that John Mark did when he left, whatever that split was over, they've been reconciled by this time of the writing of the book of Colossians. <clears throat> In fact, Paul expects that Mark may visit Colossae at this time. So if he comes to Colossae, welcome him. And then a couple more references to Mark. 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy 4, verse 11. And remember, this is the last book that Paul wrote, as far as we can tell. 
He's at the end of his life. He's ready to die for Christ's sake. He's in prison. And who's on his mind? Well, 2 Timothy 4.11 says this, Only Luke is with me. Pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for service. So this young man, who had had uh, at times a difficult relationship with the Apostle Paul, Paul still loved him. He didn't cast him out in the art of darkness, but he actually kept him close for ministry. And at the end of his life, he's saying that Mark is useful to me for service. Paul thought that Mark could could help Paul even in his final days. <clears throat> Another reference in Peter's first epistle, 1 Peter chapter 5. So Paul mentions him a couple of times, and Peter mentions him as well. 1 Peter 5, verse 13. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, so does my son Mark. So here's Mark again. He is with Peter at this time in Rome. So he's a companion of Peter as well as a companion of Paul. So spent time with both of these men. Now, another interesting verse that might be about Mark, but we can't say for sure. Go back to the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark. A very sort of quick verse here. And we see in Mark 14, verse 51, this is after the disciples leave Jesus. It says, verse before, they all left him and fled as Jesus is arrested. Verse 51, a young man was following him, wearing nothing but a linen sheet over his naked body, and they seized him. But he pulled free of the linen sheet and escaped naked. Now, What's interesting is that this story only appears in the Gospel of Mark. And we know that Mark lived in Jerusalem, and he may well have followed Jesus and the disciples around as as Jesus was going from place to place and as he was arrested. So this may be Mark putting himself, we can't say for sure, but maybe Mark puts the story in here because he's the one who knows it. He lived it. This is him, the young man. Again, we can't say for sure, but it's interesting to speculate whether this was actually John Mark who escaped uh, arrest in Mark 14. Let me just quote you again from Papias, who again lived not too long after Christ. Speaking of Mark, it says, Mark was the interpreter of Peter, who wrote down accurately all that he remembered, whether of sayings or doings of Christ, but not in order. For he was neither a hearer nor a companion of the Lord, but afterwards, as I have said, he accompanied Peter, who adapted his instruction as necessity required, not as though he were making a compilation of the Lord's oracles. So then Mark made no mistake when he wrote down thus some things as he remembered them, for he concentrated on this alone, not to admit anything that he had heard, nor to include any false statements among them. And so Mark, again, may well have, as he spent time with Peter, especially as Peter reached the end of his life, Peter, tell me some stories about Jesus. And so Peter would tell him, and Mark would write them down. Again, would likely take place in Rome, addressed to a Roman audience at uh, a Gentile audience. In fact, Mark has sometimes been called Peter's gospel. One writer said this, if the hand be Mark's, the voice is Peter's voice, to judge from the nature of the incidents, choice of matter, and manner of treatment. So we see Peter fairly prominent in, in Mark in, in different ways, and we've talked about those as we've gone through the life of Christ. We don't have time for now to go through those. But anyway, we, we see a, a more uh, emphasis on Peter in the gospel of Mark in some cases. 
Now, let's move on to Luke. We, we don't have a whole lot of time. Luke and Acts. We already saw what Luke said in Luke chapter 1 about how he wrote his gospel. He also says something at the beginning of the book of Acts. The book of Acts. <clears throat> it's opening words. He says, The first account I composed, Theophilus, that is, the gospel of Luke, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven, after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. So Luke, as you mentioned before, was a, a careful historian. He was not apparently an eyewitness to the life of Christ, but he did his research to make sure it was accurate. When it comes to the book of Acts, Luke, in fact, was a companion of Paul, and he may have written his gospel in association with Paul. Look, just as one example, Acts 16. As you read the book of Acts, you may have seen this before, but next time we read the book of Acts, just look at when the writer, Luke, talks about uh, Paul did this, they did that. And then you see some sections where it says, we did this. And so you see Luke himself weaving himself into this narrative because he's there for certain parts of Paul's ministry. So look at chapter 16, verse 10. When he had seen the vision, this what we call the Macedonian vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to him. So just in verse 6, it says, they passed through the Phrygian and Galatian region, and they came to Mysia, and they came to Troas, and then a vision appears to Paul, and now suddenly verse 10, it's we. So where do you suppose Luke was? In verse, when he meets up with Paul, probably in Troas. But Paul goes around, they, 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 and now it's we, we, we for a while, until at some points Paul separates himself from Luke for whatever reason. So Luke himself was a, an eyewitness of some portions of the book of Acts, and we see those sort of details as they go from place to place, and, and Luke seems to love writing about the, the sort of seagoing narratives, and, and the, they went from this place to this place, and the, and how the, how the wind carried them to certain places along the way. I also read, um, uh, so some of the, the stories, by the way, that Luke may have presented in the Gospel, in the book of Acts, rather, are those from Paul himself. So as Luke traveled with Paul, be natural to say, hey, Paul, what happened in this place when I wasn't there? Or he might have, if he met Peter, Peter, tell me about what happened on the day of Pentecost. And so he could have gotten a lot of his stories directly from the eyewitnesses, those who experienced those various things. Uh, I also, I quoted earlier what uh, Paul had said about Luke, that um, he wanted Mark with him. He said, only Luke is with me. So at the end of Paul's life, when Paul is in prison in Rome, Luke is with him. Luke is the beloved physician. We go look back in Colossians chapter 4. Colossians 4, uh, verse 14. It says, Luke, the beloved physician, sends you his greetings, and also Demas. That's how we know that Luke was a physician. Um, we also have... Um, uh, Philemon 24. Remember, Colossians and Philemon were probably written at the same time, going to the same church. 
And he says, um, Epaphras greets you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow workers. So Luke was with Paul when Paul wrote to the church at Colossae. And then 2 Timothy, chapter 4, verse 11, as I read before, only Luke is with me. So Luke is a companion of Paul a number of times, especially at the end of Paul's life, when Paul needs someone there to, to encourage him, to pray with him, to help him out in any way. Luke is this beloved physician. In fact, Paul may well have had some uh, difficulties. Imagine being chained up in a uh, Roman house arrest for a long time. He'd probably want a, a doctor there with him to help him out as well, besides one who's a, a fellow believer in Christ and one who he, he loves dearly. Uh, Merrill Tenney, a scholar, says this, Luke's knowledge of Christ went back over a number of years of his life, during which he associated with apostles, eyewitnesses, and possibly with personal friends or relatives of the Lord Jesus. And I've said before, I think Luke, in fact, got some of his gospel, early gospel, at least, from Mary herself. Tenney continues, Luke was no mere spectator, viewing Christian truth from the outside, but was an active preacher and missionary himself. He was the first great church historian and literary apologist for Christianity. <clears throat> now, John, we don't have a lot of time. Let's, let's kind of go through this. Sorry to kind of go quickly. But John himself, while Luke was not an eyewitness, John was. John uh, 1, from the, from the early parts of the Gospel of John, he even says this, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So John, the, the apostle, saw the glory of Christ. We even see that First John 1, 1 and 2, he mentions seeing the glory of Christ. John 19, verse 35. He who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true. He knows that he is telling the truth so that you may believe. This is when Jesus is hanging on the cross. He's died and the soldiers pierced out the spear. This one who's writing this story was there. He actually saw it. Jesus spoke to him, and he is telling you the truth so that you may believe. Uh, John, we believe, is the apostle, the disciple whom Jesus loved. We can go through that um, another time, perhaps. But Jesus had his group of 12. He had his core group of three, but it seems like John had a special friendship with Jesus. When Jesus is at the the Last Supper, the one who's reclining with him at the table, the one who's closest to him, is the Apostle John. And Jesus speaks to him often, even though John himself is not named in the Gospel of John, which is one reason why I think it is John who wrote it, because many other disciples are not named, but John himself is not named. He's always called the other disciple, or the disciple whom Jesus loved. As I just sort of alluded to Peter, Andrew, Philip, Thomas are mentioned in John's Gospel, but never James or John by name. Now, we see the sons of Zebedee mentioned in John 21, but James was killed early in church history, and in Acts 12 we see that. And John is the only one who fits this idea, this disciple who's so close to Christ. We see John close to Christ in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We don't see him by name in John, but we just gather from that that this is the, the beloved disciple, the one whom Jesus loved who's speaking to us in the Gospel of John. One church historian, Irenaeus, who lived around 130 to 200, he was a bishop of Lyon, heard Polycarp, who knew John, 
and testified that John, the disciple of the Lord, who had also leaned upon his breast, had himself published a gospel during his residence in Ephesus in Asia. So we have these four gospels and acts published at different times, different places, whether it be in the east, in, say, Syrian Antioch, or in the west, in Rome, or other places around. But God used these men to write down the stories of Christ, the words of Christ, and to preserve them for us today. Any quick questions before we wrap up? I know, again, it went really fast. This kind of stuff you could pack into a whole semester in college if you wanted to. All right, let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the faithfulness of these men in centuries past to write down the words of Christ, the works of Christ, in a way that we can have even today. Thank you for the beauties of Christ we see in the Gospels, for the the glorious work of the Holy Spirit we see in the book of Acts, for the rest of the New Testament, and even the rest of your scriptures. You have given it to us and preserved it for us in a remarkable, miraculous way. We can't thank you enough, but help us as we understand these things about your word that would increase our love for it. If it's so important for you to preserve over all these years, to speak it, how important is it for us in our day to, to grasp hold of it, understand it, and love it with all our hearts and learn all we can about how you'd have us live and how we can love Christ better. We pray these things in his name. Amen.